All right, well, you can get your, your Bible and you can begin opening to, to Mark. Uh, we're going to be talking about a little bit of another heavy topic. It seems like we've been doing that from time to time uh, these days. And uh, I want to begin by reminding you, as we've already been reminded, of the gospel. Uh, and, and particularly what we talked about last week. Last week, we were reminded that God's plan for the whole world is to get glory for himself through a people that he redeems. And he does that by choosing them from before the foundation of the world and then sending his son to atone for all their sins and then sealing them with the Holy Spirit who then indwells them and transforms them. And he does this all out of his sovereign grace. We could not do it for ourselves. It is free and based on the amazing mercies of God, we are now forgiven, we are cleansed, we are made righteous, we are justified, we are sanctified, and we will one day be glorified, and that is an objective reality for everyone in Christ. And so we come with confidence with, to Him, we, we sing our praises to Him, we, we pray to Him, and uh, the, the salvation that we have is secure and eternal for every single person who knows Christ. And I need to say that because we're going to get into a section of Scripture that for the, the sensitive among you, you might wonder about the salvation that you have in Christ. And you might wonder if you might be able to fall out of God's favor, and you might have questions about that. And, and what I would just say, that if you have those kinds of questions, in the, in the series that we're going to be doing, the series that we're currently in, if you have questions about holiness, sanctification, spiritual growth, your assurance of salvation... How can you know if you're saved or not? That you would ask those questions. That you would uh, allow the word to, to prick the conscience, to stir the mind, to stir the heart, and that you would feel free to then come and ask questions of me or the elders here or other Christians' friends that you have around you. Last week, I kind of began with the story of this guy on the basketball court. Do you remember the story? Who was uh, convinced... That because when he was 13, he prayed a prayer, asking Jesus into his heart, even though he had abandoned his profession of faith and had abandoned the Christianity he claimed at one point in his life, and he began to live as an atheist and to pursue his own sin and to be involved in immoral exploits, he had been convinced that he was still okay, that he still had the fire insurance he needed if it ended up that there was, in fact, a God. And we began our discussion by kind of looking at that person and asking ourselves, is it possible that one could be redeemed by God and yet go on living a life of rebellion against Him, a life of unrepentant, unremorseful sin against the God who saved you? Is it even possible? Is there such a thing as that kind of person? Or is that person deceived? And hopefully based on last week's sermon, you understand now that when God saves, He transforms. He gives new hearts. He puts His own Spirit and He causes you to walk with Him. And so it is impossible for someone to claim the name of Christ and yet to go on without remorse, unrepentantly, headlong into a sinful lifestyle. We, we looked at that. And we began looking at, and we were kind of concluded, I guess, 
with the, the question of, well, what is it now that we need to do? If God has called us into holiness, if the purpose of our redemption is to make us holy so that we reflect the holiness of God, well, what is our role? Just sit back and just hope it happens? Just kind of let go? Let God? We'll start with another story. I'll introduce you to a man by the name of Paul Shirley. He was the co-author of a book called Free to be Holy. As a young believer, he was devouring just about everything he could find to help him learn about God. He began attending church with this rigorous note-taking to take down anything that might help him throughout the week uh, to follow the Lord and to become more holy. He wanted to learn and he wanted to grow. And one Sunday morning, he eagerly got out his pen and notebook as the guest preacher came up to preach and the pastor opened up his copy of God's Word and began a sermon. As he listened to the sermon, as Paul listened, he realized he wasn't really taking any notes. He wasn't really finding anything that really grabbed his attention. In fact, the pastor wasn't even really pointing to the text all that much. It was more just stories and interesting facts and things like that. And finally, toward the end of the sermon, he realized, I hadn't written anything down. It's a problem if I'm trying to learn from the sermon and, and take things home and learn and grow throughout the week. It was right at that point, as the preacher was wrapping up, that he said something that finally grabbed the attention of the listener. This, this short, pithy, powerful quote that he thought, ah, that's what I need. That's going to help me in my pursuit of holiness this week. It's going to help me overcome temptation this week. And as he began to write it down, he wrote down the words. I've already kind of alluded to them. Let go and let God. You heard that one? Okay, I can do that. Let go and let God. Finally, something powerful. I'm going to think about that throughout the week and it's going to help me overcome sin in my life. As he was writing it down, he realized... I don't know what this means. He became confused. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Okay, what do I, how do I do that? He got home. He figured that maybe after lunch he could uh, figure it out on a full stomach. And so he ate his lunch. He got back to it. He looked at the words on the page, and he began thinking more about them. Let go and let God. And then he realized, with kind of a sinking feeling in his stomach, this is empty. I don't know what this means. This phrase is not going to help me at all. It would look great on a t-shirt. I mean, you could tweet that one out and it'll fly. But it wouldn't sustain his soul in the battle against the flesh. He didn't know how to even apply that. And i tell you that story because I think not only are there, is that statement pretty popular, but also, I think there are a lot of pithy, powerful quotes that we've taken in, that we believe, that we agree with, that are actually vacuous, empty, or unbiblical, or misleading that present us with ideas that are not actually how God intended for us to pursue holiness. They're like barnacles that cling on to our ship as we're going through life, 
all these thoughts, sayings, quotes that we've just kind of accumulated over the years. We think they're biblical because they sound great and maybe a preacher said it to us or we found them in a book or we heard them on the radio and now our minds are full of ideas that are actually sub-biblical. They're actually not going to help us as much as we thought they might. Are there any of these ideas that you've kind of tucked away and you put them in your pocket as you walk through your Christian life and you go, this is, this is true. This is what I need. I want to get us more and more aligned. This is the purpose of the series that we're in. More and more aligned with Jesus' method for growth and holiness. What did our Savior call us to? What did He say about becoming more like Himself? Before becoming more Christ-like? What, what, is, what are His directions? What are the Bible's directions for us to grow in holiness? Not, not just the pithy, tweetable statements that we can pick up, but what does the Bible say about growing about pursuing the Lord, about becoming more holy, about sanctification. And this morning we're going to discuss what I believe is an underemphasized, often ignored, yet massively important part of the Christian life. The title of the message this morning, as you see on your bulletin, is this, Violent Christianity. And what I'm going to call you to this morning is right out of the text, right out of what Jesus said to his disciples, Jesus' words themselves, I'm going to call you to a violent Christianity. Before you get up and leave, it's not violence against other people. We're talking about violence against indwelling sin. Violence against the sin in your own heart, the sin in your own mind, the sins that you're committing with the body. I'm calling you to make war against the sins of the flesh. And I want to just say that as people live their Christian life, there, there's certain almost like landmarks along the way that the lights turn on. And, and when you get these certain truths, they just change everything. You know, you, you come to a, an understanding of the sovereignty of God and it just turns the lights on for how you live your life. You, you go a little further, you come to understanding about the way the Spirit works in your life or the, the, the authority of the Word of God. Or uh, There's a certain just doctrines that once they click, they change everything. And, and I believe one of those doctrines, one of those ideas is what we're going to talk about this morning. And I think for so many of us, this can be, Lord willing, uh, if the Spirit is at work in your life, this could be one of those mornings that you walk out of the room a different person with new desires, aspirations, and a new commitment to wage war against the sin that is in your life. And I've been praying this week that this would happen for you. Because to make peace with sin is to declare war on God. And so we have to understand the gravity, the weightiness of sin. All through the Bible, you'll read and you'll discover that God wants us to know that we are in a spiritual war. Paul tells Timothy, wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight of the faith. Ephesians 6 goes into detail about armor that every Christian should be wearing as they fight the good fight of faith. 
Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Act like a soldier. Think like a soldier. Understand there's a war. Put on armor. This is the refrain we get again and again in the New Testament as we're understanding how to live the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 10. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Think of yourself as a soldier in a battle. This is what the Bible's saying. Do you understand that there's a different mindset that you will have if you go through your life assuming we're at peace? That there's an entirely different way of viewing the world if you think there's no war, there are no battles, all is well, and I can just walk a nice, fine evening walk through life with nothing to be too concerned about? But when you pay close attention to what the Bible says, and the Bible is saying we're at war, that there is an enemy, that there are eternal stakes, you tend to act and think differently. Imagine you're walking down a trail. The sun is out. The birds are chirping. It's a nice day. You don't have a care in the world. There's a certain mindset that you have. But imagine suddenly you hear a whistling overhead, the sound of an explosion in the distance, gunfire, smoke on the horizon. You start to see troops all around you. What begins to happen to your mindset? What begins to happen to your pulse? The adrenaline starts to flow. Your attention is increased. You're on high alert now. You hear anything, you're looking around. If you have people who are your loved ones, you're doing what you can do to think about how you can protect them. Your mindset shifts. And my contention is, is there are probably a lot, a lot of people who are saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I love the Lord, and yet they're walking through life kind of like they're on a casual stroll through the fields. They don't see the war. They're not aware of the dangers around them. And so they're just kind of, Strolling. And if that's you, I hope there's a wake-up call this morning to the seriousness of the stakes of the life that we're living. I've been reading, um, as a family, we've been reading the, the Narnia books to our kids in the evenings. We've been getting through them. Uh, we started a few months ago. We're now in The Horse and His Boy. We just recently finished The Silver Chair, if you remember that one. And there's a scene that I want to use as an illustration. Jill Pohl, Eustace Scrub, and Puddleglum, the Marsh Wiggle. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read the books. They're, they're, they're in this underworld, okay? They're in this underworld. They've, they've gone underground, and there's this world. There's no sun. There are no stars. There's no moon. All of the, Everything's dark except for the lanterns that they have. And there's this green witch that rules the underworld. She's extremely powerful, and she can cast spells on you. And there's this scene where they're in the witch's chamber. These children are there. And what the green witch is trying to do with the children is to cause them to forget that the real world even exists. To just just get that out of your mind. Just remove that from your imagination. So she starts enchanting them. She's playing her harp. And these 
spell is being spread out through the room. And she starts saying things like, tell us, little girl, where is this other world? What is this sun that you speak of? And they try to explain it to her. And she responds by saying, it hangs in the sky? Hanging from what? And they bring up Aslan, the lion, the one who represents Jesus in the stories. And she responds very gently by saying, lion? What's a lion? In other words, questioning everything they thought they knew. And the the enchantment becomes so strong that the author, C.S. Lewis, he he writes this, describing what's happening to the girl, Jill. He writes, at this time, and this time, it didn't come to her, into her head, that she was being enchanted. For now, the magic was in its full strength. And of course, the more enchanted you get, the more certain you feel that you are not enchanted at all. Think about that one. The more enchanted you get, the more you feel that you are not enchanted at all. We live in a world that is trying to convince you That there is no war, that the stakes are low, that you don't need to take anything too seriously. You just need to live a nice life, enjoy it, mow your lawn, watch your movies, eat, drink, be merry, make your money, establish your career, travel the world, make memories, relax, and then rest in peace. There is no other world, there is no God. Sin, no big deal. And the more you think you're not under the enchantment, the more you might be. Again, C.S. Lewis in a different book, Screwtape Letters, says the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So the world, our own deceptive hearts, And the enemy all form a kind of enchantment to to, to persuade us that it's all peaceful. We have no enemies. There's nothing to be concerned about. That you can sin and nothing really that serious will happen. And so let me ask you, how seriously do you take your sin? Are the stakes high? Are you playing with sin? Dabbling in it? I'm not asking if you love sin, because I'm sure not many of us would even admit that. But are you keeping it there in your life? It's maybe not front and center, but you're kind of keeping it off to the side. How are you doing dealing with indwelling Sin. We're in Mark chapter 9. And Jesus wants to wake us up for the enchantment. Jesus wants to make us see the stakes are high. That sin is serious. And that we need to wake up and fight the sin that we see in our lives. Let's read Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48. Again, we read it last week. Jesus says to his disciples, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
Better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Until you believe you are at war, you will probably play at Christianity. You'll probably play the game. Church will be kind of a game, a a hobby, a social club, until you understand that there is a war for your soul. And so in this passage, Jesus has been teaching his disciples the seriousness of sin in general. Just in the previous section, in verses 38 to 41, he was answering John's question. And John was telling Jesus, hey, we needed to stop this other guy. This other guy was casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. And Jesus talked about the seriousness of causing another believer to stumble. You don't want to stop him. You don't want to hinder him doing his work because if you cause him to stumble, this is verse 42, if you cause another believer to stumble, it's better that you put a millstone around your neck and you be thrown into the sea. And now he turns the conversation not just about causing others to stumble, but about them stumbling themselves, their own sin, their hands or their eyes or their feet causing them to stumble into sin. And we're going to deal with this passage by answering four questions. Number one, who is he warning? Number two, what is he warning against? Number three, why is he issuing this warning? And number four, how do we heed this warning? Let's look at number one, who is he warning? You can see that in the context, this is clearly his own disciples. He is warning his own disciples. So if you think that this whole question of whether I should cut off my hand, gouge my eye, cut off my foot, is, is only for unbelievers or it's for some other class of people. He's actually talking directly to his disciples. He's talking to people who had professed to follow him and know him and want to be his uh, close learners. That's what a disciple is. Who have exhibited a kind of trust in him. That is what he is ta- who he is talking to. Now, you have to remember that of the 12 men who are his disciples, uh, one of them will not make it. One of them will fall away. Judas Iscariot is a false convert at this point and will end up revealing that he never truly believed as he betrays his Savior and commits suicide uh, at the end of the Gospels. All of the people there, though, had confessed to love Jesus wanted to follow Jesus, and had even given up much to follow Jesus, but only 11 of them will be found faithful. In other words, Judas needed to hear this, and he did not hear it. His eyes were blinded, his heart was hardened to this command, and perhaps I wonder if he would have been sitting there among the 12, nodding his head in rigorous agreement to what Jesus said, even while refusing to take it to heart. That is who he is warning. He is warning true followers and in-name-only followers. So, does this apply to us this morning? Yes. Yes, it does. Secondly, what is he warning against? Look at the verses again, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, 
45. If your foot causes you to sin, 47. If your eye causes you to sin, he is warning against anything that causes you to sin. What is that word sin? It's not hamartia, which is the more common use of, or common word for sin. This is the word scandalizo. We mentioned it a couple weeks ago, looking at verse 42. This is referring to a stumbling away from righteousness. This is referring to falling away. You might call it backsliding or drifting. It would be something that is getting in the way of your obedience, getting in the way of your righteousness, something that uh, hinders your pursuit of holiness. So he's saying that there are things that you can do with your hands. There are things you can do with your feet. There are things you can do with your eyes that cause you to drift away from God, that cause you to drift away from holiness and righteousness and truth, that cause you to stumble apart from Him, to break fellowship with God and with His people. There are decisions you can make and habits you can have that lead you to fall into your own temptations and drift away from the one you profess to follow. In other words, He is warning against, as I mentioned earlier, making peace within dwelling sin. Making peace within dwelling sin. What's in dwelling sin? Well, we believe that when you come to Christ by faith and faith alone, that God redeems you. One of the things he does in that is he removes your sins from yourself. He puts them on the cross and Christ pays for all your sins. And the other thing he does is that Christ offers to you the free gift of his own righteousness. So you are forgiven, your sins are completely forgiven, and then you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And upon the righteousness of Christ, God justifies you. That is to say, he declares that you are objectively righteous, that you have a right standing with God, that you are innocent. If you have not come to Christ in repentance and faith and receive the free gift of righteousness, I would invite you to do it right now and be forgiven and saved. But for those of us who have already done that, we know that we are justified before God, that we have a right standing with God. And we also know that though the penalty of sin has been canceled, that there is still a principle of sin that weighs very heavily on our hearts, does it not? That there is a sin that, 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 that fights against the righteous desires that God has given us. The desires of the flesh wage war against the desires of the Spirit. That there is still this principle of indwelling sin that we, are, we, we fall into temptation. We give in to error and sin. Indwelling sin is a reality that every true believer is totally aware of. Such that 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We, we don't claim as believers to have no sin. We wouldn't want to lie like that. We understand that we're great sinners. And the difficulty with indwelling sin is that you know that it's there, but you often don't know where it is. It's like the cockroaches in your home. Like they come out, and from time to time, you may see one on the wall, but they're somewhere in the dark crevices of your home, and it's hard to eradicate them. You shine a light, and boom, they're all gone. I'm not saying we have a cockroach problem in the Durso home. Uh, That might scare some of you guys from coming over. But that's the reality of sin in our hearts, is that they're there, we know it's there, but we often don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to address it. And here's the thing, that sin is always active. It's never resting. John Owen, I'm going to be quoting him a lot here in the coming weeks, 
says in his great book, The Mortification of Sin, he says, sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if let alone, if not continually mortified, that means put to death, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. So you live with indwelling sin. It's there. You know it's there. And from time to time, you see evidences of it appearing in your mind, appearing in your affections and your desires, and even appearing in your words and your decisions and your behaviors. Sin raises up its ugly head. Though Christ has decisively killed the power and penalty of sin, we still feel its persuasion within us. That is indwelling sin. And what Jesus is saying, what he's getting at here, is that if there is anything in your life, even if it's precious to you, as precious as your own hand might be precious to you, and that thing is causing you to fall away from God, causing you to stumble into sin, causing you to be tempted, you should deal aggressively and decisively with that thing. Is there anything in your life that is tempting you to be untrue to God, to be unfaithful to your Savior. It could be a job, a relationship, a show, a food, a friend. It could be just about anything. In fact, the hardest ones to deal with are the, the good things, things we like. But Jesus is listing here hands and feet and eyes. Those are good things. God gave them to us. And he's saying even if a good thing becomes the occasion for your temptation, you should cut it off. You should fight it. You should make war and get violent with that thing. Paul says it this way, make no provision for the flesh. In other words, don't give your flesh any opportunity. Don't leave any doors unlocked. Don't fuel up the car of sin so you can go sin. Starve it, suffocate it, make it, have no options, cut yourself off from any kind of temptation. Get rid of it. Don't let it linger. Don't make peace with it. That's what he's warning against. Making peace with the things in your life that are causing you to stumble, to drift away from him. I wonder if any of you were to sit and think for five or ten minutes, if you could come up with something that fits in that category, something that you've been doing. And while it might not even be that terrible of a thing, it's causing you to drift from God. It's breaking fellowship. It's distracting your mind. It's captivating your heart. It's becoming an idol. He's warning against making peace with that. Now, our third question is this. Why is he issuing this warning? Why would he issue this serious warning? Cut off your hand? Gouge out your eye? Cut off your foot? Why would he say such serious things? And here's the answer. The answer is because we don't take sin very seriously. We don't act like it's that big a deal. So he is using here hyperbole. He's not saying literally chop off your hand and get the spoon and go gouge out your eye. 
He's not saying that, otherwise we would read the rest of the gospel accounts and all the disciples would be maimed and footless and armless and eyeless because it's not like they lived perfect lives after they were told this. No, they understood that Jesus was speaking in hyperbole, that, that what he's getting at is don't let sin just be in your life without going to war. Don't let it just have a foothold and just play with it, trifle with it. Jesus is saying this is because we make a big deal of our own goodness and we make a small deal of the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. I don't think we have a clue how sinful sin is. The sinfulness of sin doesn't really get talked about in the modern American church. We don't often address that. We call sin the mistake that we made. The personality type that I have. It's the way I was raised. It's that issue in that circumstance that brought it out of me. It's not really me or it's not really that sinful. And Jesus is helping us see, do you realize the gravity of sin in your life? The seriousness of sin. It is so serious that if you see it in your, in your mind, in your heart, that it starts coming out, what do you need to do? You need to go to war. You need to kill it. You need to get violent because if you're not violent, you're putting yourself in extreme danger. That's why he's issuing this warning. And here's the other reason he's issuing this warning is because the consequences of sin aren't very obvious, at least not immediately. You ever committed a sin, did something you knew was wrong? (laughs) You knew it was wrong. You, you, You talked back your spouse in a way that was just disrespectful and you knew it but you did it anyway you went and looked when you shouldn't have looked you watched what you shouldn't have watched you're engaging in sin that you know is wrong and the immediate moment of sin passes you look up and lightning didn't strike And nothing really changed. And I got away with it. So I thought. Or maybe it's hidden and no one really knows. So you're just kind of doing this thing and it's private. And it's not really changing. I haven't lost my job. I haven't broken down my marriage. I haven't hurt any people. No one knows. It's all private. Not hurting anyone. It's going to be just fine. And so we make peace with sin. It's all just private. It's no big deal. I'm just going to go on with it. Nothing's really happening. This, the consequences aren't roaring down on me like an avalanche the moment after I sin. And so you just keep going. Do it again. And your conscience is numb. Your heart is getting calloused. I wonder if there's any here that, are, that say, well, the sins I'm committing are, are, are not that big of sins. You know, there are other sins that I could be committing, but I'm not. I'm just doing these little sins. Or some of you might think that, man, God is so merciful. He'll certainly forgive me for this sin. And as you're going to commit that sin in the back of your mind, you're praying, God, be merciful to me. God, be merciful to me. I'm going to go do this sin, and I just thank you that you're going to be merciful to me. Or we are comparing ourselves to all the other people. I only do these sins, but you know what they're doing? You seen their sins? God certainly looks at me and he's proud of me that I'm not doing all those sins. We, we, we make excuses for sin. We, we make 
rationalizations. We, we justify it. We reason our way out of guilt. And we try to assuage our conscience somehow, some way, so we feel okay with committing the sins. And so why does Jesus speak this way? Because he says, wake up if you're committing this kind of sin. Wake up if you're trying to rationalize it. Wake up if you've got the private sin that no one else knows about. Be sure your sin will find you out. Wake up, Jesus is saying. There's, this is serious. This is so serious that you should deal with your sin so violently, so decisively, that you are cutting it off. You're, you're leaving it. You're abandoning that thing because you understand that if you don't kill it, it will kill you. The analogy to, to use here, I don't know if you guys heard about the movie that came out about 10 years ago. Uh, the guy who was, who was out hiking. It's based on a true story. And in his hike, he's, he's hiking solo. And he's all by himself on some trail. And as he's going, he stumbles on some rocks and ends up falling and moves some stones around, but ends up having this huge 800-pound boulder roll onto his arm. And he's stuck. And he can't move. And he tries pushing that thing, and that thing's not budging. And he starts wrangling his arm, and it's not coming out. And he's doing everything he can to get free. Meanwhile, his water's running out. He's got no food. And day one goes by and he's dehydrated. He's starving. And he's crying out. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. And no one hears him. And finally, after a few days, he realizes the decision that he has to make. I either cut off my arm or I die here alone. And he ends up figuring out a way to break his own arm and to use his pocket knife to cut off his own arm. He gets out of there making a tourniquet out of his own clothes and he is found and discovered and he is rescued and he is alive today. And there are some of us who need to realize that if you don't cut it off, you will die. You will die in your sins. If you don't deal with it, you will die. That's why Jesus is issuing this warning. Because there are dangers greater than you understand if you go headlong into sin. I want us to think about dangers. Okay? We need to sit and just load up our conscience here to understand the, the danger that we find ourselves in when we are in sin. Here's four of them, all taken from John Owen's book, Mortification of Sin. Number one, sin will harden your heart. A little indulging here. A little compromise there, give a little tad there, cross the boundary there, ignore God's word there, suppress the Spirit's conviction there, violate your conscience, shirk your responsibility, then go bury your guilt in some amusement, and then wake up days, months, years later, cold, calloused, hardened, fruitless, empty, This is what Jesus is warning against. One of the dangers of sin is that your heart will be hardened. That's why Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says, Take care. Pay attention. Listen. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And he says, Exhort one another every day so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will deceive you. I remember our old pastor in Simi Valley used to put it this way. Sin will make you stupid. Sin will make you stupid, and you'll do stupid things. 
if you let yourself indulge in sin, and the more stupid you become because you're letting sin cloud your mind, the more stupid things you'll do, and you will become a breeding ground for more sin, and sin will never stay put where you want it. It will grow, and it will grow, and you will regret it. The second danger of sin is that sin invites God's discipline. It is a moral law in the universe that sin has consequences. God has made the universe that way. You throw up a ball, what's it going to do? It's coming down. The law of gravity. And if you violate God's moral universe, there are prices to pay. Even consider God's redeemed. Consider David in the Old Testament, whom God calls a man after his own heart. But after his sin with Bathsheba, if you've read the account of David's life, how different is that man after that sin? Have you noticed that? Consider, get him in your mind, him him fleeing as his own son pursues him. Consider him agonizing over the loss of his own child. Consider that year where he didn't confess his sin, he just sat in it, and his bones are trembling with guilt and shame and regret. His own kingdom splits before him. God disciplines, and yes, he disciplines the ones he loved. That doesn't mean we should love discipline and invite it in. And so we go on sinning. No. I've seen it. In Scripture, I've seen it in life. You live the Christian life long enough, you'll see it too. When genuine Christians make horrible decisions and they reap the consequences of that for decades. Decades. It can ruin a marriage, ruin a child, ruin a church, ruin a ministry, ruin a life. There are consequences for sin. Third, another danger is it will absolutely destroy inner peace and strength and vitality, confidence and joy. I mean, you were made to live as a confident child of God. All throughout the book of Hebrews, there's invitations. Come with confidence and assurance to your God. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. And what happens when you let sin get a foothold in your life, that just begins to erode. Your sin is like acid just destroying assurance and confidence and increasing guilt and shame. This is what happened to David in that year. He he describes in Psalm 32, after he had committed the sin, and he went on for an entire year without without confessing that until Nathan the prophet came and confronted him. And during that year, listen to how he described himself. This This is a warning for all of us who are maybe playing with sin. He says, for when I kept silent, this is before he confessed, before he dealt with it, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He's weak. He's wasting away. He's groaning on his bed all day. He has no strength. He doesn't want to get up and go do anything. It's a miserable life to live in sin, to be under conviction and yet not deal with the sin that is in your life. See, what sin is, it's an offering of something that tastes really good as it goes down, and it will leave you burning in your stomach for decades to come if undealt with. It'll destroy the inner peace that you want in your life. And here's the fourth danger of sin. And this is what Jesus gets at here. 
it will put you in danger of eternal destruction. Verse 43, it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. The unquenchable fire. Verse 45, it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's, he's bringing up a threat, isn't he? I mean, let's just we'll look at the words. He, he's bringing up a threat to those who have made peace with sin. Those who have made peace with indwelling sin are in danger of hell itself. The word hell is used several times in these verses. The Greek word is Gehenna. What's Gehenna? There's a place in the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom, and it was used, it eventually became a place that false gods were worshipped there, and even child sacrifice happened there, that kings would offer their own children into the fire to appease whatever gods they were worshipping. And over the years, that place became kind of a, a disgusting place of garbage and refuse, and it was outside Jerusalem, and it was uh, the place where you would throw all your trash and all your fires, even sometimes you'd throw the, the corpses of the dead would be thrown into that fire. It was a stinky, nasty place that every Jew in the first century would have known. Gehenna, a terrifying image in the mind. And here is Jesus is saying, you don't cut off your sin. You don't deal with it in your eyes, your hands, your feet. There is the danger. Here is the danger that you face. It is the danger of being cast into Gehenna. The fire that doesn't go out. The place of constant burning. It's an unquenchable fire. That means it'll burn for all time and eternity. We talked about hell a few weeks ago. The worm does not die. What an interesting statement. It's a reference back to the very end of Isaiah. Talking about those who are cast out of the kingdom of God. He's not talking about an earthworm. He's talking about the maggots and the larvae that eat the rotting flesh of the dead. This is the place that Jesus is saying will be the destiny of those who have made peace with sin. To make peace with sin, as I said earlier, is to declare war against God. To make peace with sin is to make peace with hell itself, and it will be to one day find yourself enchained there eternally. If a person says they know and love Jesus, but their hearts adore sin in their actions, they are committed to their sin, they are in danger of the destruction in Gehenna that Jesus is mentioning here. I remember hearing a story about a couple that had grown up in, in church, and the girl was actually a missionary kid, and so she was taught by her parents the gospel at a young age. But this couple had begun to drift from the upbringing that they had received in the church, and this girl had moved in with this guy, and they were living together. They weren't married. They were sleeping together. And they met with their pastor. Their pastor looked them in the eye, 
very firmly, but gently told them, if you don't stop that, you're going to hell. Something shocking. She had never heard anything like that in all her life. She had never been told that her salvation was in question because of her unrepentant sin. Thirty years later, that girl is eternally thankful for the strong and firm words of that pastor and has written a thank you note every Christmas to thank him for that warning because God used that in her life to help her see the seriousness of her sin and all that pastor was doing was echoing what Jesus says here. If you are in sin and you're living in it without remorse, without repentance, without desire to change, you continue on that road, you are an enemy of God. And what Jesus is saying here is that you will find yourself cast out of His presence for all eternity in hell. Now there are many motivations to live a holy life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's a good motivation. I want to see God. That's a positive motivation that I am given so that I might pursue purity. But there are also more strong medicines for the soul. Particularly the soul that is asleep, that needs to be woken up, that needs to be able to see the seriousness of sin. And this is a medicine that needs to be given to the person that's not aware of what sin is doing to them. And Jesus is saying, stop, cut it off, get violent, kill it, put it to death. And if you don't, there will be consequences. Not that you stop earning your salvation, but that you are proving that you never had it. You never knew the God who made you. And I pray, and I've been praying this week, that if there's anyone here that's playing with sin, indulging in sin, just going on with sin, or considering sin, and you don't have any desire to change, you don't have any desire to grow, you don't have any remorse, you're not talking to anyone about it, you're, you're keeping it in the corner of your life, I want you to hear this. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Gouge it out. Because if you don't, you're in danger of the unquenchable fire. You say, okay, well, how do I heed this warning? Uh, and that's our last question here. How do we heed this? What do we do? The answer that Jesus gives here is cut it off. Gouge it out. Get violent. Get serious. It's not talking about the knife, cutting off literal hands and eyes and all that. It's not what he's saying. It's the graphic hyperbole to call you to serious war against all known sin. Every impulse to love something more than God, every impulse to lust after sex or money or fame or pleasure, every impulse to be a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser. Every impulse toward laziness and everything that causes you to be drawn to those sins must be dealt with immediately, promptly, aggressively, decisively. Deal with it. (laughs) What Jesus is saying here is you need holiness more than you need your hands. You need holiness more than you need sight. You need that in your life. This is a need. All the other things in your life, don't put them in the need category. 
This is what you need is to be holy as God is holy, to pursue it with all your might. Eliminate anything in your life that causes you to sin. It could be a credit card. It could be a computer, a phone, a social media account, a video game console, a boat, a relationship, a career, a Netflix account, a car, a gym membership, you name it, fill in the blanks, whatever it is that causes you to sin, cut it off, get violent, run away, flee the temptation. And sometimes you have this conversation with people, and over the years I've brought this up to people who are, are neck deep in sin. And you start telling them, hey, this is what Jesus wants for you. This is how you deal with sin. This is how you overcome it. And initially, there's usually an excitement. Okay, you're right. I can deal with sin. I can, I can do this. I need a plan, and this will help me engage in a plan to overcome my sin. And then you start getting practical. You start going, what about your smartphone? Would you be willing to give that up? Take a dumb phone for a little bit? Oh, but how would I see the scores? How do I respond to the guys who are going to call me or the, the text message? I got friends that, and, oh, man, my Instagram following might uh, diminish. I won't be able to catch up with all the things on, on Twitter. Um, how can I? Ooh, I don't, I don't, are you serious? You want me to do that? Oh, wait, you want me to, to confess this to the person I sinned against? You want me to confess this and actually start talking to someone else to get, to get help? Are you serious? And the response is, you tell me, Jesus serious? Or, or is he leaving room for you to just kind of keep dabbling here? Did he say cut it off or did he say, no, you have the power to contain it on your own? As long as you domesticate it, you know, you can just domesticate it. And I think what's happening with so many of us, we're dabbling in sin and we're not trying to kill it. We're just trying to tame it. We're trying to domesticate it. We're trying to just tone it down. Just trying to keep it under control. You know it's bad, so you keep it private. It's not hurting anyone. I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm going to keep it tame. I'm going to keep it under control. And you need to hear this. Jesus is not telling you to tone it down. Jesus is not telling you to domesticate it. He's not telling you to tame your sin. He's saying, kill it, or it will kill you. That is what he is saying. And we'll finish with this illustration that is too good to not use. The illustration that I heard and that I'm without shame, stealing from another pastor. There's a show called When Animals Attack. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you watch it. And in this one episode, there was a commercial being filmed. And in this commercial, there was this girl that was supposed to be doing something. I think it was a shampoo commercial or something. And in the commercial, she was supposed to sit next to a lion. And the lion had been, obviously, been trained and been brought up and uh, nurtured by this lion trainer, and they begin to go film the commercial. And the girl gets down, and she's assured that this is a tamed lion, and that it won't do anything, and she sits down with it, and you can guess what's about to happen. The lion just goes berserk and attacks this girl, just ripping her to shreds, treating her like a rag doll. And the lion starts acting like a lion and, and, and just destroys this poor girl. I don't she didn't lose her life, but she was mauled by this thing. And in the show, they are interviewing, they're interviewing the lion trainer. 
And the lion trainer goes, I'm shocked that this had ever happened. I trained for this lion ever since it was a little cub, and I, I nurtured it, and I taught it and all along, and it, would, it never has done anything like this. It, it would never do anything like this. It's a, it was a tame lion. I'm, I'm just in complete shock. I, I, I made it sure that it would, be, it would learn not to, not to do this to anyone. You know what the problem was? That lion is a lion. It's still a lion. You can't take the lion out of the lion. And what do lions do? They have claws and teeth for a reason. They maul things. That's what they do. That's what they're for. That's why they exist. They're lions act like lions. And listen, there are some people who are trying to be like that trainer with their sin. I'm just going to train it. I'm going to keep it in, in a cage. I'm going to treat it like it's okay. I'm going to put this part of my life. And guess what? Your sin is sin. And you can't take the sin out of your sin. Your sin will end up one day mauling you if you don't kill it. You don't deal, you don't play games with it. You eliminate it, you run from it, you change, you eradicate it from your life. Don't try to tame sin. Don't try to privatize your life and act like it doesn't hurt anyone. Be killing sin. This is what John Owen says. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So let me ask, are you at war? Or are you under that enchantment that we talked about at the very beginning? Convinced that you're all good, there is no war, and all is well. Or are you awake and at war with the indwelling sin in your heart? If you want to change, I'll give you four things to do real quick. Identify that sin, confess it to God, confess it to a fellow church member, a brother or sister in Christ, and make a plan to eradicate it from your life. Get practical. Do something today. Talk to someone before you leave. Call someone on the phone. Rather, deal with it today than let it fester. The conviction that you feel now will dissipate, and next week you'll forget about it. Deal with it now, today, And don't rest your head on that pillow tonight until you've talked to someone. If you are dealing with indwelling sin and it is ruling you and you can't get a handle on it, talk today with someone. First to God and then to someone who can help you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I do pray that you would pierce our hearts, awaken our conscience, and allow us to make war with sin. If any of us are at peace with sin, if any of us are contemplating moving into a life of sin, Lord, I pray that you would quicken their spirits, prick their conscience, allow them to repent right now, that you would move in their hearts and stir them to do something they might be afraid of, to confess it, not only to you, but to someone who can help. And Lord, we know that victory is possible in Christ. Sin can be killed. We don't have to be ruled by our temptations. Lord, I pray that they would begin to see the light, that they don't have to live in darkness, that there is hope. But Lord, we can't just let go and expect you to just eradicate us by a zap of some sort. I pray that we would trust in your grace and make war. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.